Episode 14 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. episode 14 of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott, and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend some time commuting directly with them, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest. This week, I'm back to the original format in hunting for interesting ICOs that are upcoming. And we'll also spend some time reviewing an ICO that has been out for a little while. For the first one, We have a project here that intends to completely disrupt an industry that arguably needs disrupting, the worldwide retail grocery industry. This week's ICO is... The INS Ecosystem. Now just to be clear, the INS, definitely not a blockchain token designed to review immigration status in the United States. This is about grocery. This is about the ability for consumers to purchase their groceries directly from the companies that make us food. And the premise is pretty simple. The $7 trillion worldwide grocery industry is dominated by retailers. The INS ecosystem aims to eliminate those retailers, or at least chip away significantly. And the fundamental problem to solve is essentially one of merger and acquisition where fewer and fewer retailers exist as conglomerates step in and expand. Now, the white paper uses the UK as a model, which is apparently no stranger to monopolistic tendencies, since according to the research done by INS, there are 7,000 grocery manufacturers serving 25 million households in the UK, And how many retailers control the majority of the market share? Four. Four retailers control over 75% of the grocery market in the United Kingdom. This is actually worse than in the U.S., which I thought was pretty bad. For instance, when Albertsons merged with Safeway back in 2015, they were fighting for survival against Walmart and Kroger. In the United States the top four grocers take on about 40% of the grocery retail market, which is still an enormous percentage, and it speaks to the trend that is outlined in the INS white paper. When you look at those trends in that white paper, you find that worldwide this is a major, major problem. In fact, the U.S., with the 40% consolidation, is actually one of the least consolidated countries. Now, as you might guess if you listen to this podcast, 
Their idea is to use the blockchain to decentralize the market and foster direct interaction between manufacturers of food and consumers. The fundamental argument that INS makes is that $50 billion is spent by retailers each year in marketing to push the products that provide the maximum profit for the retailer, not necessarily those products that the consumer wants or needs. The current model is that the manufacturer doesn't do any marketing. They just make the product and they send it to the retailer. INS intends to build a system that provides the ability for manufacturers to reward the customers directly using the INS token. The white paper describes a reward system similar to air miles, but they say that it'll be powered by smart contracts, and so therefore it'll be easier to administer and maintain. One of the important points that they make in the white paper is that this will not help just the consumers with lower prices. It'll help the manufacturers. And the main reason for that is that retailers, as they have consolidated and reached monopolistic dimensions, have become bullies. This is well known. In fact, as reported by Bloomberg, Walmart has a program called One Time in Full. This program fines suppliers for shipping products early as well as late, as well as not packed according to a very specific protocol. Those suppliers are fined. So to avoid a fine, the supplier has to be 95% of the time neither late nor early and packed perfectly. Now, as anyone knows who works in supply chain management, there are so many factors that can cause more than a 5% variance. So it's pretty much guaranteeing that the supplier will be fined. Now, the white paper includes a lot of examples from European markets, and there the problem is even worse than Walmart. In Portugal, 90% of the grocery market is controlled by three retailers. So that's the fundamental concept. Let's talk about the company and the team. In this case, the company's incorporation registered in the British Virgin Islands. It's a common offshore jurisdiction for United Kingdom-based corporations. There is, of course, an established relationship between the UK and the BVI. The team itself is primarily Russian, and they have some pretty solid credentials. The founder received his MBA from the Harvard Business School, teaches classes in retail in Stockholm, and worked for Goldman Sachs. The co-founder has a PhD in finance. The lead programmer has four years in developing blockchain applications, which is a pretty solid credential in this space, and currently works for ICO Box as the CTO. According to his LinkedIn profile, the lead programmer developed Equihash, which is used in Zcash coin, when he was at the University of Luxembourg. And there, he received a PhD in computer science. There are about 10 people on this team, and every one of them has an impressive history of experience and talent. In fact, there's no less than four graduates of Harvard Business School on this particular team. They also have quite an all-star cast of advisors. There's one person from Bancor. Bancor is famous for raising $150 million in about three hours. There's also the co-founder of Wings, which was another successful ICO. And we also see people advising from the Harvard Business School. So if you happen to believe in that institution, I would say that you can't really ask for a more stellar team. 
Let's talk about the white paper. I feel like the first part of the white paper does a good job of stating the essential problems that the retail grocery industry faces, such as consolidation, as we discussed earlier, as well as some serious inefficiencies in supply chain, where you have food that's shipped halfway around the world, which adds enormous cost and inefficiencies, not to mention the increase in the carbon footprint and wastefulness. And they also cite in the white paper a number of something like 130 million pounds of food thrown away each year because of these inefficiencies. And the white paper also goes on to explain why the team has the specific experience to tackle the problem in terms of their background in the retail food industry. And then, of course, they describe the size of the market, which is enormous at 7 or $8 trillion. I mean, everybody has to eat, right? They also note that the ability for consumers to purchase their food online is about to explode. And I was surprised by this. There are some projections by some notable um, researchers that show that online food purchases in China is projected to be around $178 billion by 2020. This came as a surprise to me because I didn't realize that China was so far ahead of the United States in terms of purchasing food online by consumers. On page 18 of the white paper, they finally really arrive at the point at which they begin to explain how the decentralized blockchain that is built by INS will facilitate better direct engagement between manufacturers and consumers. So they point out four major actors. The first is the platform itself. Now, that's the INS blockchain, and there's some related distributed applications and smart contracts to power it. Then there's the manufacturers. Now, those are the ones that grow and process the food. And, of course, there's the consumers, those that buy it. But there's an important piece that they also mention, the fulfillment. And this last one, to me, is really kind of the linchpin of this whole thing, because if you think about this, That's the role that the retailer actually plays in the current model. Or, in fact, if you think of the projected model of online sales, like, say, something like Amazon Fresh, this is all about fulfillment. So if you remove this centralized concept as Amazon Fresh, for one, and you remove the ability to get the food from the manufacturer to the consumer, fulfillment becomes really, really important for this to work. Now, we'll talk about this a little later. Uh, We asked a couple questions on Telegram, and then we just dug in and we found some answers that are kind of interesting. We'll return to this topic when we get back to the business viability and so forth. This white paper also goes on to illustrate with screenshots and so forth the web applications that will be necessary in order for consumers to use the system, as well as a web-based fulfillment application for those who are working in that part of the ecosystem. All in all, I would say uh, that the white paper is, is, is definitely very good for stating the business case. It's also good uh, for explaining how the system will actually work and what the players are. One thing that it, it's a little bit light on, I guess you could say, are some technical details with respect to the way in which the token will be used and the network and the platform. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the network 
uh, in the network analysis part of this podcast. Let's talk for a moment about the roadmap. Uh, the concept itself was started in the first quarter of 2017, about six months ago. The company itself was formed in May. In the last quarter of 2017, which is basically now, uh, the token sale is scheduled. And in fact, that's going on right now. In the first quarter of 2018, they plan to develop the INS platform, which would be the blockchain and some of the applications. Uh, in the second quarter of 2018, which would be you know March through June, they plan to develop the consumer and fulfillment applications. This is a little bit aggressive when you think about it. Uh, I mean, I've been in software development for a number of years, and uh, one quarter to develop a, a full-blown fulfillment and consumer application for something of this scale Maybe a little aggressive in terms of their roadmap. Uh, they say in the fall of 2018, they'll be undertaking the development of the supplier software and a development kit to allow uh, suppliers to write their own apps uh, right on the blockchain, I suppose. And then the launch for the entire ecosystem is about one year from now. And again, uh, for something of this scale, I think that might be a little bit ambitious, but that's their roadmap. Let's talk about the network and the technology. The authors of this white paper acknowledge the limitations of the present state of the Ethereum platform as a high-load network. Now, because the authors of this white paper believe that there'll be as many as billions of people using the network, actually said billions of people, uh, they believe, if you believe that, then they definitely believe correctly, in my opinion, uh, that the dozen or so transactions per second on the Ethereum platform currently just will not work. And so they say that they plan to develop a more privatized blockchain where nodes are selected from a trusted set of supporters. Now, this is that familiar type of consortium-based permission blockchain. We heard this from Simply Vital Health and a few others in this type of blockchain, members of the public are free to use the blockchain, of course, for transactions, but only trusted nodes can validate the blocks. Now, that's obviously different than the Bitcoin protocol where anybody can, or even Ethereum for that matter, anybody can fire up uh, a full node and start mining. Uh, the authors specifically mention the Honey Badger BFT project. That's the Honey Badger Byzantine Fault Tolerance project which is really an academic project at the moment uh, where researchers have been able to support tens of thousands of transactions per second on a permissioned blockchain using a form of Byzantine fault tolerance. In fact, I read a, an academic paper that was uh, published by researchers from three universities, and these scientists set up a total of 344 instances of nodes that were running on Amazon's EC2 platform. That's a virtualized server platform for cloud-based instances of servers. And it's, it's actually an excellent platform to be able to test something like this since it's all virtual. And if you have some money, you can fire up these EC2 instances of Linux or Windows or whatever you want. I'm sure they use Linux uh, all over the world. Uh, they actually did this across five continents and they ran these nodes in sort of ascending groups. So the first group was like 31 nodes, then there was 40 nodes, then 48, 56, 64, and then 104 servers, 104 nodes running on a permission blockchain. And then they just proceeded to throw transaction loads 
on these nodes. So that the nodes themselves would propose anywhere between 256 transactions upwards all the way up to 131,000 transactions. So what they found using their Honey Badger BFT protocol was that in networks with about 40 nodes, they were able to achieve throughput exceeding 20,000 transactions per second. Now that's not bad. That's right around maybe a little bit less uh, than Visa. It's an order of magnitude many, many times uh, that of Ethereum or Bitcoin. Uh, for the networks that were larger, so that would be a, a consisting of, let's say, 100 nodes, they were able to achieve about 1,500 transactions per second. Now, if you think about that, of course, you might wonder, wait, why would there be, why would it be faster with fewer nodes? Well, of course, that's because of consensus, right? So when you have more nodes that have to establish consensus, you're going to have slower amount of, of transaction capacity. Um, Nevertheless, 1,500 transactions per second, if you compare that with the dozen or so you'll get out of Ethereum and maybe the five or six that you can get out of Bitcoin right now, you can see that this is a significant improvement. And I think that it's worth noting that all of the detractions that they're talking about with respect to um, Bitcoin and Ethereum what it sort of all leads us to is that the future of practical deployment of blockchain technology is really going to lie within these sort of um, semi-privatized blockchains where there's some trusted nodes, not that many of them. And you certainly need a number of them to be secure, but still, if you can reduce them to trusted nodes, high level of trust, fewer of them, you can obviously attain greater throughput. It's interesting to even talk about how they even managed to do this. How do you get from 12 per second or 7 per second to 20,000? And just as a side technical note here, we'll explain it. Basically, they're using a protocol that is asynchronous. And what that essentially means is that the nodes don't have to be obsessively communicating with each other to maintain what you might call replicated state. Um, there's another protocol that's much more popular called the Practical Byzantine Fault Protocol. And that's a partially synchronous protocol. And that's a way to establish consensus, but it relies on a synchronous transmission, a synchronous immediate replication of machine state. The problem with that is that it inherently, in a wide area network, and we're talking about five continents here where you have latency between the broadcasts, let's say, or between the communication between all the nodes, when you have that sort of latency, it's conceivable that packets can arrive out of order. And so what the asynchronous protocol does, this so-called Honey Badger BFT is that they rely on batching. So they're doing a lot of batching asynchronously, not necessarily in an effort to maintain strict timing and equivalent machine state. I just think that getting back to the INS white paper, that the fact that the authors recognize this sort of academic work uh, is a plus in my mind. Although, wouldn't it have been nice uh, if uh, the people who wrote the white paper actually did some of this research themselves and confirmed what those researchers found. Uh, but, you know, 
the fact that they mentioned it is means that they're at least reading the most recent and uh, cutting-edge technology. What's not clear in the white paper with respect to this network, and in fact, not very many white papers do a very good job of this at all, is precisely how this issue of interoperability will be handled between their inevitable ERC-20 token, which of course this is an ERC-20 Ethereum-based token, named INS, running on the public Ethereum blockchain, how that token will interoperate with whatever token is on that other blockchain that they mentioned, which is more privatized, consortium-based, and permissioned. I haven't yet seen a white paper that fully describes that ability to interoperate between those blockchains and to break down those details. Now, what I think is actually going on here not to be too cynical, is that it's a relatively trivial exercise to create an ERC-20 token on the Ethereum platform. And so it's really convenient to do that and embrace Ethereum during your crowd sale because you can spin up a token and make millions and millions of dollars really quickly and really easily. Then you can mention that, oh, well, by the way, there is a problem with Ethereum, and yeah, we're considering the possibility of maybe doing some kind of side chain, private chain, blockchain, whatever kind of other thing. So really, it's a way for ICOs to have it both ways. Let's talk about the token and the sale. Well, there was a pre-sale for this token on November 27th, and it lasted until today, which is December 4th, I can't really find information as to how much was collected. According to the website, however, the token sale started eight hours ago, and they've already raised over 50% of their hard cap. So the hard cap is 60,000 ethers, which at today's exchange rate is about $28 million. So according to the website, it looks like they've raised about $14 million so far. Now, whether or not some of that was done in a privatized or pre-sale, I'm not sure. Fact remains that if you believe what they say on the website, then this sale is half over eight hours after it began. The soft cap for this sale is 20,000 ethers, and they've already reached it. Hard cap, like I said, was 60,000. And for each ether that you contribute, you get 300 INS tokens. Now that comes in right now at about $1.60 per INS token. And there's all kinds of ways to get bonuses, and they're all described on the website if you're interested in joining this. Uh, you can pay, actually, in a lot of different ways. Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Dash, even bank transfer. U.S. citizens are closed to this ICO, and they're using KYC, Know Your Customer. So it might be a little bit tricky to try to buy these if you are a U.S. citizen. Uh, the sale ends when the hard cap is reached or in two weeks, whichever comes first. I'm personally a little confused by some of the numbers that are floating around. Uh, and the reason I say it is because when you go to Etherscan, you don't really see evidence of the blockchain um, accepting orders. In other words, that address, the contract address, you don't, you can't find it. People have mentioned this in Telegram as well. Uh, there's about 10,000 users on the Telegram channel, and it's kind of chaotic right now. Everybody's in a bit of a frenzy because they're contributing and they're not seeing what they're what they want to be seeing. But nevertheless, though, uh, there's an interesting thing going on right now with Ethereum. Somebody pointed it out on Telegram, and they're right. Uh, Ethereum is extremely backed up right now. 
there's about 15,000 pending transactions. And about 12% of those transactions are because of a game that was launched on the Ethereum platform about a week ago called CryptoKitties. So for between $7 and $25, uh, you can start out scratch and breed a little virtual kitten. Uh, and then the crazy thing is you can turn around and sell your virtual kitten after you've bred them. And some of these little kitties are going for like $20,000 to $50,000. In fact, the Genesis kitty went for $115,000 thereabouts the other day. The, the game has only been around for about six days, and it's consuming anywhere between 10 and 15% of the Ethereum blockchain platform. <laughs> the entire network. Crazy, crazy times. So that could be one reason why you're not seeing the INS uh, tokens uh, being transferred. Uh, there was another INS person actually on the Telegram channel that said the orders are currently in a queue right now and they'll be applied uh, in batches. So it's not really possible right now to verify that there is in fact 50% of the hard cap raised. Uh, but if it's true, there's a very good chance that, uh, that this... ICO won't go the full two weeks. And based on this, there's every indication that this is actually a pretty successful ICO. Now, if you think about this success, and you think about the token, and then the value of what the token is right now, and then you think about the roadmap and what this project brings, I actually don't see a lot of reason for the token to dramatically rise in value when it hits the exchanges. Because the roadmap's relatively long. I mean, even so, uh, they're not going to be developing anything that anybody's going to be able to really see for months and months. They say that the token's going to hit the exchanges in a couple weeks. If it hits the exchanges in a couple weeks, I'm not so sure that that $1.60 per token value will hold. And it could be that you see actually between the time the token is released and the time anybody actually sees anything, there's a good chance that this value will decrease and you might have an opportunity if you are a U.S. citizen or kind of shut out of the sale at actually picking up these coins at a lower amount in the not too distant future. It's just a random thought that I have when I think about some of these ICOs and the way that they're structured. I wouldn't be too surprised if you saw something like that. Let's talk about SEC compliance. Again, this ICO is denied to the U.S. participants. Uh, not so sure that really is what we're really talking about here with SEC compliance. I think whether or not this token is denied to the U.S. participants doesn't really matter with respect to SEC compliance. The only reason that I bring SEC compliance into any of these ICO analyses is because if the SEC came down on a particular project, then you would probably see some form of damage to the price of that coin or to the project itself. It's conceivable, certainly. With respect to SEC, if we decide that we're going to begin putting weight into the argument that was made by those attorneys who filed the Tezos class action lawsuit, and then if we were also to add some weight provided by, there was this really popular article recently written by an attorney with something like 25 years of securities litigation. 
And it sounded like a reasonably written article. And he basically said that if you're raising money to build something that is not already built, your token sale is essentially the sale of a security. And if you think about that, that's basically what the Tezos class action lawsuit lawyers were saying. They were saying that the Howey test, one of the really important prongs of the Howey test, is that the success of your investment is dependent on the efforts of others. So you as an investor are out of control. So what these token sales attempt to do is they say, oh, no, no, you're not. You're not. This is this is a utilitarian token. You're a big part of this. You're going to be able to vote. You're going to be able to use the network. Well, what that attorney's saying and what those attorneys are saying is essentially the same thing. They're saying, look, if you don't have a system already in place when your sale begins and you collect the money, and if you are in fact collecting that money to build the system that everybody's going to be using, they are relying on the efforts of others, which are you, and therefore you are selling a security. Now, if we're going to begin to use that kind of reasoning, it sort of drastically reduces the number of ICOs that are not considered a security. And this is one of those ICOs that under that measure would be considered security. So the SEC would look at this and say, hey, you know what? You don't have an operating system. Now, why am I saying this? Well, I'm only saying this because there doesn't seem to be any evidence of there actually being a network for anybody to log into and use. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any beta that anybody can, even alpha software. When you go to the GitHub repository, it's just a smart contract. It's actually the smart contract for the address that they're using in order to collect the uh coins um, and and fund the project. So that indicates that there, in fact, is nothing there yet. And therefore, again, if you believe this argument, you might conclude that this would come under the target of the SEC as a security that should have been regulated and therefore a so-called illegal ICO in the eyes of the United States. I'm going to leave this with you as the listener uh, this is obviously an unsettled matter. Uh, this is something that we just have to read about, think about, and just decide for ourselves. I'm very interested in this entire topic, and I'm going to continue to research it and report it in this podcast, any developments that come up. Let's talk about the business viability and any possible gotchas. Uh, my feeling is that from a business viability standpoint, that there is so much obvious consolidation and abuse by these large retailers. And there's so much room for efficiency in terms of the supply chain and even the retail establishments. If you parse out that fulfillment aspect to smaller actors, and you know, to be more specific about that, I did have a couple questions about couriers, for instance, about part of that fulfillment process. If they take the approach of Uber, which is actually what they actually mentioned in the FAQ on the website, that, you know, just like Uber drivers are delivering groceries, there's nothing to stop people who have cars who are willing to be part of the fulfillment process to move food from manufacturers to consumers. If you imagine that that would be something that 
could be viable, like sort of like Uber is viable, then I could see how this could conceivably work. Now, there is one issue that I see that might be difficult, and that's the actual fulfillment centers. So yes, it's true that Uber has great success because just about everybody has a car, and there's a significant number of people who need to make a second living or at least a little bit of money to offset uh, their expenses by using their car as a sort of quasi-taxi. That works. But there's a little bit of an issue here with the fulfillment center. What there aren't are tens of thousands of little fulfillment centers waiting to spring into action. That's a little bit of a problem because fulfillment centers are pretty logistically well thought out, designed. They require warehouse space. This would be refrigerated warehouse space. Uh, in some cases, the, the couriers will have to use refrigerated capability to get the food stuff to the consumers that is perishable. So it's easy to say all this in a white paper. It might be another story to be able to logistically get the fresh food to the consumers without the benefit of a retail market. So think about that a little bit and try to imagine the idea of thousands of people transporting food from what amount to small fulfillment centers getting that food to consumers, I mean, certainly there's plenty, plenty of market capability, but this probably would be a slow-grow project if you think about it. So my final takeaway is that if you can believe the numbers on the website, it's clearly a successful ICO. They've got a solid team. they got a pretty good idea uh, that can provide some real benefit to the world. I believe that it's possible for the team to pull it off in terms of building the blockchain and building those web-based applications. Uh, strictly speaking, a token itself is not absolutely necessary for the ecosystem to function, uh, but it certainly provides some utilitarian value with respect to rewards. If it facilitates the ability for the team to carry out their mission or get on with their idea, then that's a good thing. Whether or not this would be immediately widespread and immediately successful, I think remains to be seen. I'm a little skeptical about how long it'll take to get this in play in any kind of large scale. I have some logistical concerns with respect to how the food will get to the consumers um, in terms of the fulfillment centers especially. So it's a mixed bag for me. Uh, I think you should visit it Take a look, read the white paper, and decide for yourself. All right, let's change focus. Uh, this is a project that's been live for quite some time in various incarnations. It's called Cardano. And the Cardano project was launched a few months ago by a company named IOHK, uh, basically Input Output Hong Kong. That company was founded a few years ago by one of the early founders of Ethereum, a guy named Charles Hoskinson. A couple years ago, they held a crowd sale that went on for quite a while, almost two years, under the auspices of IOHK, and they raised about $60 million. And then they set about building a blockchain platform, similar to Ethereum, but with some pretty key differences. They call it Cardano. They have a token. The token is ADA. Now, this is one of those 
sort of quieter, non-hyped ICOs. And there's some really interesting differences here. The first difference between this and, let's say, Ethereum is that this blockchain was built from absolute scratch using a programming language, which is rather uncommon and quite interesting, called Haskell. Now, if you look around and read a little bit about Haskell, you'll find that there's some aspects of that programming language that make it quite attractive for a number of reasons. It's considered by some people to be one of the most secure programming languages. It has very, very strong static typing, uh, and the compiler enforces type checks, which results in some very clean and simple code. This language, it's very mathematical. Uh, there's some very powerful concepts. There's one concept called a monad, M-O-N-A-D, and that's essentially a way to structure computations in a way of building blocks. Now, I'm not talking about a blockchain per se. I'm just saying that there's a way to structure your computations as building blocks using other computations. So it sort of allows the programmer to, to wrap uh, a value or let's say the result of a computation with a specific and particular context. There's some people that believe that a program written in Haskell is inherently more secure than one that is written in a so-called imperative language like Python or Ruby. And the second most important difference, I think, uh, between this and Ethereum is that this platform is from the get-go a proof-of-stake platform, not a proof-of-work platform. Very, very efficient. In fact, it's, it's a relatively new algorithm uh, called Ouroboros. And that's sort of highly tested, you know, peer-reviewed um, proof-of-stake consensus algorithm. Very, very secure. They're even talking about in the near future to be able to make it secure against quantum computer hacking. And that's a big buzzword right now. Just search it up. It's, it's pretty severe, quantum hacking. If a quantum computer, not that they exist yet, but when they do, if they were to attack the Bitcoin protocol, it could do it some serious, serious damage. And what they're saying here is that they're thinking a couple steps ahead with this Ouroboros and highly secure proof-of-stake algorithm consensus mechanism that is actually resistant to quantum attacks, or will be shortly. I'm sure they're working on it. Um, this coin itself had a recent jump in the last few weeks and months, maybe to, uh, to a price of right now of 13 cents U.S. dollars. The trading community, if you go in and you start to really look at the trading community, um, they're all convinced that there's a dump of the coin coming any minute now, uh, that it's just a matter of time. If you go to Bitcoin Talk and, and listen to this, um, they could be right. It's absolutely conceivable and possible that they certainly have seen a lot of these come and go that way. But if you do a little bit of research and you listen to the founders of this project talk about their project, you might develop a difference of opinion with respect to the longevity of, of this project and of this coin. In fact, I would just say go to YouTube, look for Charles Hoskinson, uh, and just start listening to some of these videos. I mean, they're usually an hour long, not just his. There's, there's chief scientists, 
Uh, there's some extremely, extremely brilliant people. In fact, if you really want to learn some fantastic information about blockchain, about some of the really very, very important and technical aspects of blockchain technology, just listen to some of these people talk about their project and any project uh, that Hoskinson has ever been on. Again, he was one of the first founders of Ethereum. So uh, what I like about the project is the fact that you've got people like that who are deeply involved in it. It's not an overly hyped project. In fact, it keeps appearing on these lists of overlooked coins. Uh, and and I absolutely agree with that. I, I think that uh, it's just lost in the sauce. It's, it's lost in this crazy, frothy, lunatic ICO market that we've got. And this is just one of those serious gems. So that's ADA is the coin, and the name of the project is Cardano. Okay, that wraps it up for ICO 41 this week. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk next